It's good to be together today. Good to see each of you. Excited to have this opportunity to study with you and excited to continue a series on First and Second Peter, the epistles of Peter with a focus on, a theme on living as an exile. And I said that I saw within that uh, three sub-themes, the context of First Peter, suffering, we're going to talk about more depth later, our response to suffering, not what you would expect, maybe not how we normally react, submission. And then we've started by talking about separation, separation from the world, in the world, not of the world, living as an exile. And a three-part mini-series to begin within the overall series, three-part mini-series on holiness. In part one, we talked about becoming holy through the new birth, First Peter chapter 1 why we need to be born again, how we're born again, the mechanics of that, what are the results of being born again, which led into part two, being holy, the fuel of hope, the motivation of fear, those two things working together to make us holy as he is holy. And that leads into part three this morning, the importance of remaining holy. I want to begin with a reading from Second Peter chapter 2, why this is so critical, why this is so important. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Thus the inspiration for the picture of our slides this morning. So the context, 2 Peter chapter 2, false prophets. There are false prophets among you, just like there were in the Old Testament. So maybe the false prophets that's speaking about here, maybe those who are being led astray, turning from the holy commandment, from the truth, by the false doctrine. In any case... You have people who have escaped the pollutions of the world, have escaped sin through the gospel, through the truth, but they're again entangled. Now, we want to balance the two extremes. Possibility doesn't mean probability. That's one extreme. The other extreme is that it's impossible. We don't want either extreme. Notice there's a difference between being imperfect John writes, we confess, we try to walk in the light, the blood is there to continually cleanse us. He leaves the, the faucet running, essentially, is the concept in the Greek. That's different than someone who is involved to such an extent they're entangled. That level of involvement, they're overcome, they've given up, they've given in, they have turned away, they have turned from, back to vomit, back to being a pig. And he said it's worse than if they had never known. How is that? If we can't fall away, how can it be worse than when we ever became a Christian? I think it's worse in several ways. The effect it has on you. Hebrews talks about being impossible to renew at that point, that you get in such a depraved condition in your rejection, your stubbornness, that you're almost impossible to convert, harder to convert than those who have never been converted. As a result of your previous conversion, you have more knowledge. When with that knowledge and privilege comes more responsibility, more accountability, it's worse in the beginning. And I think also the effect it has on others. Think about how many people haven't come to Christ. Their conversion has been prevented, or they have left Christ as a result of the hypocrisy of unbelievers because we have blasphemed the name of Christ in the way that we live our life. 
And so again, we don't want either extreme. So to balance this, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1 in verse 5. You think the battery's out, Jason? It's a great start. 1 Peter chapter 1 in verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Being guarded, our being guarded is in the present tense. And that's great news for us. That's a continuous action in progress, unfailing. It's happening right now. We are being guarded, present tense, right now, and that's great news. The word guarded is a military term. It means that God has set a military guard around us. So is that unconditional? Notice the phrase, through faith. There's the answer. As long as we stay within the guard God has placed around us, this shelter, this protection, we are safe. But just like we had free will to walk within that guard, we have free will to walk outside of that guard. And when we do that, we are left exposed and vulnerable through unbelief. If it's not possible for us to fall away, why all the admonitions throughout these epistles, throughout the Bible? Be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walketh about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. If Satan can't devour us, why the admonition to Christians? The first letter written to warn of external threats. The second letter, written to warn against internal threats. There's no need for these warnings if this is impossible. But again, in balancing this out, probability does not mean, possibility does not mean probability. doesn't mean inevitability. But it is possible, so it's critical that we are diligent, that we make every effort, that we strive to remain holy. And I believe these epistles give us a strategy for doing just that. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. For if... These things are yours and abound. You will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if, notice these conditional words, if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So notice, if you do these things, if these things are yours in abounding, if they're increasing, growth, development, maturation is critical, is key to remaining holy. If you do these things, there is eternal security. You will never, that's a huge word, you will never stumble but rather you'll have an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. And that word in the Greek, the concept there in the Greek is the parade. We have the Olympics coming up, a parade they had for Olympic champions. And when you receive that parade, when you receive that abundant entrance, when you receive the crown, the reward that lasts forever, you will never regret the diligence you exerted in this life. And so what's our response? Make your calling and election sure. Not to earn it, not to deserve it, not to merit it, but to make our calling and election sure. And that surety, that assurance of our, our salvation is not based upon the subjective 
experiences or feelings or emotions, thank God it's based upon His objective truth and the objective promise of God that if you're born again and washed in the blood and continue to be cleansed by the blood as you strive in your imperfection to remain holy, you have the hope and promise of heaven. Not based on subjective feelings, but our response to the grace of God evidenced in the way that we live our life. Evidence in what we do. So again, our response, give all diligence. Make every effort. Exert. And what do we make every effort to do? Add to your faith, virtue. This list of qualities, out of one grace grows another. If you have genuine faith, it's going to lead to an excellent life. It's going to result in virtue. If it doesn't do that, James says, it's not faith. It's dead. And if you're going to live an excellent life, it leads to excellent knowledge, knowing God better. How can you know and have confidence you're going to heaven without knowing how? And if you have excellent knowledge, it's going to lead to discipline. You're going to regulate yourself by that knowledge, self-control. And that bridges the gap between what we believe and what we actually do. I'm going to have self-control as I consider the, the holiness of God, the virtue of and excellence and glory of God. And I'm going to have conviction. Because of that knowledge, it's going to lead to self-control. And then I'm going to, if I have discipline, I'm going to have endurance. I'm going to be equipped now to persevere. And if I persevere, I have patience. I'm relying not on myself or my circumstances, but I'm relying on God. That leads to godliness. And if I'm godly, I'm going to have an affection, a Philadelphia love, a brotherly kindness for others, and above that, agape love. If I don't love and want to be with God's people on earth, how can I have assurance, how can I have surety that I'm going to be with them in heaven? It's a wonderful, clear list of qualities that aren't hard to understand to evaluate our surety, evaluate our assurance. And Peter says you can't be confident if you're short-sighted, if you're blind, if you've forgotten. We can't walk confidently if we can't see and remember clearly. If we're myopic, with amnesia. So remember the cost that was paid. Remember the cleansing that occurred, and that has a transformative effect on the way you live your life from now on. Gives us a foundation for living a life that's not barren, that's not unfruitful. We're not idle. We're not ineffective anymore. We're not useless. We're not lazy. The surest sign, the surety, the surest sign that we're a Christian is fruit. By this you shall know them, by their fruit, Jesus said. If I abide in you and you abide in me and my word abides in you, you won't just bear some fruit, you'll bear much fruit. And he's not asking for perfection, but he is asking for progress. And he has invested his power and promise within us. He's given us the power to progress. Not that we're always on the mountaintop, but we must always, always, always be climbing higher. So the previous verses leading into this list... 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, one of Peter's favorite words, precious, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So divine power is the source, and godliness is the goal. Through... That's how. That's the means. Through knowledge. Those waiting for a direct revelation from God, clamoring for influence apart from the Word of God, are minimizing the divine power of God's Word, or spending time and energy waiting for something 
that God hasn't promised while neglecting what He's actually revealed. Time and energy, they should be using to acquire what God has already given. Divine power is giving us all things, and that means all things, everything we need for life and for godliness through what? Through knowledge. Knowledge of what? Not just any knowledge, knowledge of Him. The more you know and appreciate the virtue and glory of God, the less you will desire sin. That's why this is so, so important. So we pursue godliness by knowing our calling and election to glory and virtue, by believing the promises of God that they are exceedingly great and precious, and by escaping, overcoming the promises of lust, the desires of the world, the desires of, the, of, of sin, with the superior promises and desires of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-6, through 6, Therefore, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as to a living stone, talked about a living hope, a living word, a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to who? To God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. The word therefore means look before. He's talking about our new birth. You're born again. He's not saying necessarily that you're all immature infant Christians, but the concept here is keep desiring what brought you into being and continues to sustain you. As a baby, as an infant desires milk, that kind of hunger, that kind of thirst, that kind of intensity, and I want to tell you that's very, very, very convicting. If you've had an infant, if you've had children, when you think about we're going to desire the Word with that type of intensity, that's super convicting. You know, when we had Kinsley, we finally had a girl to go with the two boys, and we were excited to have some pink in our life and to decorate her and dress her up and the shoes, the pajamas, the bows. And you know what you discover? The parents care about that. The grandparents care about that. The infant could not care less. And that's evidenced every time we come to church. We spend the first several seconds or minutes on arrival trying to find her bow that she inevitably discards every single time. Until fairly recently, the only thing she seemed to desire was milk and the source of that milk. And that's exactly the kind of desire we are to have for the Word of God. Relentless in our pursuit. That, here's the purpose. So you can grow, so you can be rooted and anchored, so you can mature and develop, which is going to keep you holy, so that you can grow and so that you can lay aside all those things he talked about in verse 1. Because you've been born again, chapter 1, you're going to live and act in different ways. You're not going to do those things. You're going to lay those things aside because love doesn't do those things. They're hindrances and barriers to love for God and love for other people. So eliminate sin, because sin ruins our spiritual appetite. Sin ruins, those things ruin our taste for holiness, for the goodness and graciousness of the Lord. And the strategy, the means for doing that is verse 2 and verse 3. Desire the word like an infant desires milk, and taste it, experience that the Lord is gracious. When you taste and experience the Lord is good, 
You'll have no appetite. You'll put away the things that are bad. So the new birth changes our feelings and our actions. Malice is a disposition of heart to hurt somebody. We might say mean-spirited. Put away all, keyword all. Have we put away all malice? Have we put away all evil speaking in our life as a result of the new birth? All deceit and hypocrisy. That's making people believe something about us that's not true. Taking advantage of people. Envy and slander is how we feel about others. Often, really, the result of how we feel about ourselves. And the remedy, how we overcome this, is complete and utter, total satisfaction and contentment in the goodness, kindness, and grace and word of God. That's the remedy. So remember who you are. Remember whose you are. He says that in verse 5. He repeats that in verse 9. You are these things. Then in verse 9 again, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You are a spiritual house. You are the temple of God. In the Old Testament, you are, a, you are a priesthood, the priesthood of all believers. In the Old Testament, they had a priesthood. In the New Testament, we are a priesthood. And that should motivate us as we live in the temple, the church, the house of God to be holy. A spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifice. And what are we offering? Love instead of malice. Truth and authenticity instead of deceit and hypocrisy. Joy and encouragement instead of envy and slander. And stressing who we are and whose you are is so important. Because as exiles, we can feel very small and very insignificant in this world. Remember who you are. Why the stone theme? You know, Jesus quotes this from Isaiah, other New Testament. This is a familiar verse. But why right here? Why all of a sudden does Peter talk about the stones? Well, the context is he's calling Christians into a life of following Jesus into a life of rejection. Remember that Jesus was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, precious. And that preciousness is only available to those who believe and obey. The opposite of believing is those who are disobedient. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. What does that mean? Did God predestinate their disobedience? No, God didn't predestinate the individual, goes free will, but he did predestinate a plan. Those that accept the chief cornerstone that believe and obey, to them he becomes a rock of salvation. To those who reject and disobey the chief cornerstone, he becomes a rock of offense and a rock of stumbling by which you will destroy yourself. That's what was appointed. That's what was predestinated. And so he says, because of who you are, I beg you as sojourners, as pilgrims, as exiles, kind of the title verse for this series, because you're in exile, abstain with things that don't accord. Abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. And how do they do that? Why do these lusts war against our, our soul? Because they prevent us from doing verse 9. They prevent us from being and doing what God has called us to be and do. Any passions that stop and prevent, verse 9, anything that prevents you from marveling in His light that make other things seem more bright, more marvelous, more appealing, is warring against your soul and your eternal destiny. What about this day of visitation? They see your good works, they glorify God on the day of visitation. What's that mean? Well, sometimes it means 
the visitation of God's judgment, the coming of God's judgment. Sometimes, though, it meant the coming of God's salvation. And I think in this context, I think that's probably a better explanation here. God's coming grace, their day of their conversion, and our good works and our proclamation. Be ready to give an answer. Chapter 3, verse 15. Evangelism. Our words and our works play a major role in that day of visitation. And so what's the response to this marvelous light? How do we respond? How did Peter respond to the marvelous light of Christ? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. The closer you're brought to Jesus in the new birth, the more you recognize your sin, your shortcomings, your failures, and there's absolutely, John and Isaiah, same response. Vision of God, the presence of God. No room for self-righteousness. No room for proclaiming my superiority, but his superiority. Peter said, humble yourself, be submissive. We'll talk about it. Be clothed with humility. Every day, put on humility. Why? For, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want to invite the grace of God into your life? Be humble. You want to invite the opposition of God into your life? Be proud and self-righteous. What's the purpose? What's the reason? Understand the why. You are that you. You're all these things in verse 9. Chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, his own special people. Why? You are that you may proclaim. That's why you exist in the world. Why? Because that's how the good news is spread so others can glorify God. So others can have a day of visitation, a conversion, salvation, a new birth. To see and treasure and glorify Christ the way we do as a result of the new birth. So count your blessings. The Lord has been gracious to you. Count your blessings. Cherish your privilege, verse 9, because of who you are, and offer it all up in spiritual sacrifice. What kind of sacrifices? These epistles, others. We offer fruit of our lips. We offer worship. We offer praise. We offer prayer. We offer ministry. And when will we do that? When you believe and taste and experience that the Lord is good, that's when you'll do that. When you believe that the light truly is marvelous, more marvelous than the darkness, that's when you'll do it. If you want to be free of the things in verse 1 that prevent you from evangelizing, loving, serving other people, if you want to be equipped to love and evangelize and serve other people, you have to desire the Word of God, the gospel, like a baby desires milk. That's the key to evangelism. That's when you'll do it. And the motivation is that we have experienced it, we have tasted the product ourselves. That's the key to being a good salesman. When that's your food, when that's your drug, when that's your treasure, you can't help but proclaim His praise. You can't help but live in that light. So grow up, get motivated, know the why. Jesus emphasized that. If you're going to be holy, not externally, but internally, our heart and actions both, our attitude and actions both have to be separated, dedicated to God. One without the other is unholy. And now you enter into commitment mode, not just compliance mode. If you have compliance without commitment like the Pharisees, you're going to get around the compliance. You enter into commitment, now you're all in. You're not lukewarm, you're bought in, you own your faith, and you're going the extra mile. You enter commitment mode, and now you can arm yourself. And 1 Peter chapter 4 gives us instruction on how we do that. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, look before, he's talked about the suffering of Christ, 
as we endure suffering, look to the example of Christ we'll talk about later. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind or the same way of thinking. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. There is sacrifice and suffering when you die to self to live with Christ. Romans 6, you join in his crucifixion, his burial, his suffering, his death, to be resurrected to walk in newness of life. And our attitude is a weapon. We have to have a militant attitude against sin and for God. And one of the best arguments against sin and for holiness is the suffering of Jesus. Christ suffered for us. If that means anything to you, if that's done anything for you, how can we enjoy, how can we get involved to entanglement, to be overcome, to turn back to that vomit when we consider and appreciate what our sin cost God? What our sin did to Jesus, the pain and suffering it caused Jesus. Would you keep an instrument, a weapon that was used to murder a loved one, would you keep that around as a keepsake? Jesus submitted to the greatest suffering imaginable, but not the least sin. And that ought to motivate us. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? Again, it doesn't mean perfection. It means that we've completely stopped and will never sin again. But if this is our mindset, if this is our attitude, I am dead to self, I am dead to the world, I am dead to sin. If I'm willing to die for Christ, if I'm willing to live for Christ, I have ceased from sin. I'm not living that lifestyle anymore. I'm not practicing those things. That is the purpose. That we should no longer live for the will of man, the will of the flesh, but for the will of God. And so Peter goes on to tell us how we do that. Verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And I believe the end of all things likely is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem that was about to occur, the annihilation of this mosaical system, but I think we can apply the same concept in our lives today. Because the end is near and that our life is short. Death is coming. Christ is returning. Because you've wasted enough time already, that's the verses leading into verse 7. For we have spent enough of our time living like this. And that ought to grieve us. If you've been born again to a new attitude, to a new life, it ought to grieve us to think about the time we wasted sinning against God and hurting other people. Because you've wasted enough time, because death is coming, because Christ is returning, therefore, if you want to live and make the best of the time that you have left, live in view of your death. Live in view of the Lord's return because the approaching end of anything is a powerful, compelling argument for sobriety, watchfulness, and prayer. Think about who wrote this, the one who literally fell asleep when he was supposed to be watching and praying. If you're thinking and your praying is right, your living will be right. The world will make us drunk when we drink it up. We'll impair our ability to be in touch with spiritual reality. We won't be able to pray soberly. We won't be able to pray correctly and ask for the correct things. We won't pray consistently if we aren't connected to reality. If you are drunk on worldliness, you won't have a desire for spiritual discipline. So pray soberly and above all, so important, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. We aren't perfect. We've talked about that. And because we're not perfect, without love and grace covering the multitude of our sins, 
We would destroy the relationships we so critically need with God and others to maintain our exile orientation. It's not just any kind of love. It's a fervent love. It's an eager love. It's an intense love, that full-hearted, wide-eyed, Philadelphia-cherishing affection, agape love, serving love as a choice. And so important because it covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? Does that mean that we overlook sin? That we don't confront sin in other people? Love doesn't do that. God's love for us didn't do that. Doesn't, it should grieve us to see people involved in activity that destroys their soul and, and hurts other people. Love takes action to reconcile to God and others. That's what God's love did for us. Yes, love overlooks trivial, inconsequential matters that aren't sin. Love forbears in that way, but love addresses, you know, another passage with the same phrase, James 5.20, in the context of turning someone back to the truth, saving them from the error of his way, save a soul from death, and cover a multitude of sins. Love prompts action with the converting of the individual in mind. That's the goal. We have the seed of the Word of God and the new birth producing the fruit of love. And I believe the power to do that, I believe the power to love other people is hope. Faith, hope, love. That's what chapter 1 is all about, hope. So we're told to love, sincere love of the brethren, and I believe the reasons to do that are given right before and after the command. Because you've been born again, obeying the truth, obeying the gospel, having been born again, imperishable, incorruptible word of God, similar words earlier about our new birth. You have an imperishable, incorruptible inheritance, reservation in heaven. And if that word is in you that caused the new birth, sustaining you, that's incorruptible, imperishable, you last forever. And that ought to give us hope. And it's that hope that should give us joy and love that is seen and evidenced in the way that we treat people. Why do we sometimes not treat people well on Mondays? He's lost hope. <laughs> it's lack of joy. Why do we treat people good on Friday or when we have a vacation coming up? We have the most epic, wonderful, eternal vacation. And that ought to be manifest. Our belief in that, our hope in that should be manifest the way we, not with malice, no longer with envy or slander or bitterness or being short-tempered. But I now can, it's the hope that allows me to pay the price of love. To love at the risk of losing the green grass and the flowers that I might have gained by selfish pursuit in this life. If I had avoided the expenses that love for God and other people calls me to. So I'll be humble, selfless, submissive, blessing, forgiving, risking for others because I have overcome the fear of the loss of these things. Because I have hope of a glory that endures forever. And love's not just charitable, not just to be charitable, but to be hospitable. Love and, and our, our love for others should not just be fervent and forgiving. It needs to be practical. We need this so critically to survive the alienation we so often feel in this world. Be hospitable, that's convicting enough to one another. What's really convicting, without grumbling. If you're going to be hospitable, don't complain about it. Without grumbling. You think about the 
probability of a new convert sticking with it, being retained, remaining holy, I submit to you that it increases as their experience of hospitality increases. And you all have a role in that. You might not have been involved in their born again, being born again, but all of us have a role to play in their retention and their remaining holy. What do we do when someone becomes an addict? When someone gets overcome and entangled in something, we have an intervention. Surround yourself with people who will help you see it. And that's not possible if we're not in each other's lives and each other's homes. You can't see it. Surround yourself with people who will help you see it and stop it and prevent it because they love you and they're concerned for you. We have to be in each other's lives because distance and negligence does not make us fervent. We have to fan this flame. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And I know the context is during a time of miraculous gifts that we no longer have today, but again, applying the concept, the gifts God has entrusted to us, your talent, your ability, your opportunity, your time, your resources, your relationships, understand you are a steward, not a master. You don't own those things. So I'm not hiding them, I'm not neglecting them, I'm not burying them, I'm using what God has invested and entrusted to me to do what? To minister to others. Everyone, each one, all of us, use it for ministry. Use what's been invested in you. God has invested His power and promise in our growth. Use what's been invested in your faith to bless other people, to serve other people. That's how you stay holy. The Bible says now you're addicted to the ministry and addictions are hard to quit. So going back to 2 Peter 1 as we close, after giving us the list of qualities we talked about earlier, he continues in verse 11, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, to remind you so that you'll remain holy. Though you know and are established in the present truth, yes, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent or this body to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me, I believe, referring to John 21. Moreover, I'll be careful. Same word for diligent. He used earlier, you be diligent, I'm going to be diligent. I'm going to practice what I preach, and I'm going to be diligent to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Greek word, exodus, my departure. And so in this wonderful passage, in one place, we're given the keys to living talked about earlier living and dying well here's how you live and die well for this very reason live like you're camping out live like it's temporary live like this world is not my home when you go camping at least in my family it doesn't last long and i don't invest a whole lot of money in that activity because i'm going to invest more money in my house because that's where i spend more time invest in the mansion in heaven Get down to the base. When you go camping, you don't take everything. You strip down to the basics, what you really need. Get rid of the noise, the distractions. This world is not my home. I am an exile with an exile orientation. Live like that, and you'll live and die well. Live with death in mind. We talked about that. I'm going to put off my tent soon. Jesus had foretold it. It's going to be a violent death. He's an old man by now. as He, wrote, he knows it's going to happen soon. We talked about live with the end, the approaching end being powerful motivation. Every morning you wake up, the end is near. I must shortly put off my tent. That ought to motivate us in the present. And finally, live for God and others. Live to, to leave something that outlasts you long after you're gone. 
What legacy will we leave? You want to live and die well? Think about the legacy you'll leave. How will you be remembered? How might the decisions I make today affect my great, 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 great grandchildren? And if I don't remain holy, what, or should we say who, will remain? The lesson is yours this morning as we offer an invitation. If you're here this morning and you need to be born again, through the new birth we talked about previously, believe, repent, be baptized. If you're here and you need help living, being, remaining holy, the way that we talked about the one who supplied this abundant entrance. If you want this parade in heaven, this reservation in heaven for you, the one that made and makes that possible, invite you to come. Please have a seat on the front as we stand and sing together.